Chapter Ten of the Silent Battle by George Gibbs, recording by Tony Oliva. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mister Van Dyne rides forth. Mister Coleman Van Dyne lurched heavily up the wide steps that led to the main corridor of the Potawomac apartments and took the elevator upstairs. He asked for mail and sat down at the desk in his library with a frowning brow and protruding jowl. Affairs downtown had not turned out to his liking this morning. For a month everything seemed to have gone wrong. He was short on stocks that had struck the trade winds and long on others that were hung in the doldrums. His luck at auction had deserted him. His latest doctor had made a change in his regimen. A favorite horse had broken a leg, and last, but not by any means the least, until this afternoon, fate had continued to conspire to keep him apart from Miss Jane Loring. They had met casually several times at people's houses, and once he had talked with her at the Sudams. But the opportunities for which he planned obstinately refused to present themselves. He had finally succeeded in persuading her to ride with him today, and after writing a note or two, he called his man and dressed with particular care. Mr. Van Dyne's mind was so constructed that he could never think of more than one thing at a time, but of that one thing he always thought with every dull fiber of his brain and miss loring's indifference to his honorable intentions had preyed upon him to the detriment of other and perhaps equally important interests mr van dyne was large of body and ponderous of thought and his decisions were only born after a prolonged and somewhat uncertain period of gestation it took him an hour to order his dinner and at least two hours to eat and drink it and so when at the age of five and thirty he had reached the conclusion that it was time for him to marry he had set about carrying his resolution into effect with the same solemn deliberation which characterized every other act of his life he had been accustomed always to have things happen exactly as he planned them and was of the opinion when he followed the Lorings to Canada, that nothing lacked in the proposed alliance to make it eminently desirable for both of the parties concerned. Matches, he knew, were no longer made in heaven, and an opportunist like Henry K. Loring could not long debate upon the excellence of the arrangement. Miss Loring's refusal of him up at camp last summer had shocked him and for a while he had not been able to believe the evidence of his ears, for Mrs. Loring had given him to understand that, to her at least, he was a particularly desirable suitor. When he recovered from his shock of amazement, his feeling was one of anger, and his first impulse to leave the Loring camp at once. But after a night of thought, he changed his mind. He found in the morning that Miss Loring's refusal had had the curious effect of making her more desirable. 
more desirable indeed than any young female person he had ever met he was in love with her in fact and all other reasons for wanting to marry her now paled beside the important fact that she was essential to his well-being his mental health and happiness he did not even think of her great wealth as he had at first done of the fortune she would bring which would aid materially in providing the sort of an establishment a married van dyne must maintain in his cumbrous way he had decided that even had she been penniless she would have been necessary to him just the same he had stayed on at camp accepting mrs loring's advice that it would not be wise to take her refusal seriously she was only a child and could not know the meaning of the honor he intended to confer but in new york her indifference continued to prick his self-esteem and for several weeks he had been following her about sending her flowers and losing no chance to keep his memory green and so he examined his shiny boots with a narrowing and critical eye donned a favorite pink silk shirt and tied on a white stock into which he stuck a foxhead pin he had put on more flesh in the last three years than he needed and his color bands were getting too tight but as he looked in the mirror of his dressing stand he was willing to admit that he was still the fine figure of a man a van dyne every inch of him it was in the midst of this agreeable occupation that mr worthington entered a cornflower in his buttonhole and otherwise arrayed for conquest van dyne looked over his shoulder and nodded a platonic greeting teen it bibby oh yes might as well do that as sit somewhere just stopped in on my way down worthington's apartment was above and then lord coley you are filling out riding no grinned the other going to pick strawberries on the metropolitan tower don't i look like it worthington smiled van dyne's playfulness always much resembled that of a young st bernard puppy i thought you'd given it up her name please mr van dyne refused to reply it's the loring girl isn't it worthington queried cheerfully i thought so you lucky devil he touched the tips of two fingers and thumb to his lips and with eyes heavenward laid them upon his heart she's an angel a blue-eyed angel fresh from the rosy aura of a cherubim oh coley what the devil can she see in you don't be an ass bibby van dyne grunted wrathfully i'm not an ass i'm in love you amatory behemoth in love as i've never been before with an angel fresh from elysium meaning miss jane loring who else there's no one else dolefully there never has been any one else there never will be any one else you're in love with her too aren't you coley well of all the impudence nonsense i'm only living up to the traditions of our ancient friendship i'm giving you a fair warning 
I intend to marry the lady myself. The visitor had lit a cigarette and was calmly helping himself to whiskey. Van Dyne threw back his head and roared with laughter. You! Good joke! Ha! Oh, you got as many lives as a cat, Bibby. Been blowing out your brains every season for fifteen years. He struggled into his coat and squared himself before the mirror. Wasting your time he finished dryly, meaning that you are the chosen one. Oh, I say, Coley, don't make me laugh. You'll spoil the set of my cravat. You know, I couldn't care for her if I thought her taste was as bad as that. Not engaged, are you? Oh, drop it, said the other. Remarks are personal. Miss Loring is a fine girl. Fellow gets her will be lucky. He had poured himself a drink, but paused in the act of taking it and asked, "'Haven't seen Gallatin lately, have you?' "'No, nobody has, since that night at the club. He'd been sitting tight, and God knows that's no joke. Good Lord, but he did fall off with a thud. Been on the wagon six months, too. He ought to let it alone.' "'He can't,' said Van Dyne grimly. Well, six months is a good while for Phil, but he stuck it out like a little man. And then ruminatively, I wonder what made him begin again. He'd been refusing all the afternoon. Came in later with his jaw set, white and somber, you know, and started right in. It's a great pity. I'd like to have a talk with Phil. I'm fond of that boy but he's so touchy. Great Scott, I tried it once, and I'll never forget the look he gave me. Never again. I'd as leave try a curtain lecture on a bingle tiger. What's the use? We've got troubles of our own. Not like his, Coley. With me, it's a diversion. With you, it's an appetite. With Phil, it's a disease. That's why he went to Canada this summer. By the way, you were in the woods with the Lorings. Of course you heard about that girl that Phil met up there? No, growled the other. Seems to be a mystery. Percy Endicott says. Van Dyne set his glass on the table with a crash that broke it, then rose with an oath. Think I'm going to listen to that rubbish? He muttered. Who cares what happened to Gallatin? I don't, for one. As for Percy, he's a lying little gossiping Pharisee. I don't believe there was any girl. But Gallatin admits it. D. Gallatin, he roared. Worthington looked up in surprise, but rose and kicked his trousers' legs into their immaculate creases. Oh, if you feel that way about it. He took up his silk hat and brushed it with his coat sleeve. I think I'll be toddling along. Oh, don't get peevish, Bibby. You like Phil Gallatin. Well, I don't. Always too de-starchy for me, anyway. He paused at the table in the library while he filled his cigarette case from a silver box. Then he examined Worthington's face. You didn't hear the girl's name mentioned, did you? He asked carelessly. Oh, no. Even Gallatin didn't know it. Worthington had put on his hat and was making for the door. Of course, it doesn't matter anyway. 
Van Dyne followed, his man helping them into their overcoats. Can't drop you anywhere, can I, Bibby? I've got a machine below. No, thanks. I'll walk. On the ride uptown, Coleman Van Dyne glowered moodily out at the winter sunlight. He had heard enough of this story. They were telling about Phil Gallatin and the mysterious girl in the woods. He alone knew that the main facts were true, because he had had incontestable evidence that the mysterious girl was Jane Loring. All the circumstances as related exactly tallied with his own information received from the two guides who had brought her into Loring's camp, and in spite of his knowledge of Jane's character, the coarse embroidery that gossip was adding to the tale had left a distinctly disagreeable impression. Jane Loring had spent the better part of a week alone with Phil Gallatin in the heart of the Canadian wilderness. Van Dyne did not like Gallatin. They had known each other for years, and an appearance of fellowship existed between them, but in all tastes, save one, they had nothing in common. He and Gallatin had locked horns once before on a trifling matter, and the fact that the girl Van Dyne intended to marry had been thrown upon the mercies of a man of Gallatin's stamp was gall and wormwood to him. But when he thought of Jane, he cursed the gossips in his heart for a lot of meddlers and scandalmongers. If he knew anything of human nature, and like most heavy, deliberate men, he believed his judgment to be infallible. Jane was the blue-eyed angel Mr. Worthington had so aptly described, fresh from the rosy aura of a cherubim. But there were many things to be explained. One of the guides that had found her had dropped a hint that it was no guide's camp that she had visited in the woods, as she had told them at camp. And why, if she had been well cared for there, had she fled? What relations existed between Jane Loring and Phil Gallatin that made it necessary for her to hide the fact of his existence? What had Gallatin done that she should wish to escape him? Van Dyne's turgid blood seethed darkly in his veins. Gallatin had acknowledged the main facts of the story. Why hadn't he told it all, as any other man would have done, without making all this mystery about it? Or why hadn't he denied it entirely, instead of leaving a loophole for the gossip? Why hadn't he lied, as any other man would have done, like a gentleman? Only he, Van Dyne, had an inkling of the facts, and yet his lips were sealed. He had had to sit calmly and listen while the story was told in his presence at the club, while his fingers were aching to throttle the man who was repeating it. Phil Gallatin, D him. It was therefore in no very pleasant frame of mind that Van Dyne got down at Miss Loring's door. The horses were already at the carriage drive, and Miss Loring came down at once. Mr. Van Dyne helped her into the saddle, and in a few moments they were in the park, walking their horses carefully, until they reached the nearest bridle path, where they swung into a canter. 
Miss Loring had noted the preoccupation of her companion, and after one or two efforts at cheerful commonplace, had subsided, only too glad to enjoy in silence the glory of the afternoon sunlight. But presently, when the horses were winded, she pulled her own animal into a walk, and Van Dyne quickly imitated her example. "'Oh, I'm so glad I came, Coley,' she said genuinely, with mounting color and sparkling eyes. "'Are you?' he panted, Jane's optimism at last defeating his megrims. "'Bully, isn't it? Ever hunted?' "'Yes, one season at Pow. Jolly set. Hunting set. Jolliest in New York.' "'Yes, I know some of them. Mr. Kane, Mr. Spencer, Miss Jaffrey, the Rawsons, and the Penningtons. They wouldn't do this, though. They turn up their noses at park riding. Aren't you hunting this year?' "'No,' he grunted. "'Life's too short.' He might also have added that he wasn't up to the work, but he didn't. Jane noticed the drop in his voice and examined him curiously. "'You don't seem very happy today, Coley.' "'Any reason you can think of why I should be?' he muttered. "'Thousands!' she laughed, purposely oblivious. "'The joy of living!' "'Oh, rot, Jane! Coley, you're not polite!' "'Oh, you know what I mean well enough!' he insisted sulkily. "'Do I? Please explain.' Don't you know this is the first time I've been with you alone since the woods? He stammered. Jane laughed. I'm sorry I have such a bad effect on you. You asked me to come, you know. Oh, don't tease a chap so. What's the use? Been trying to see you for weeks. You've been avoiding me, Jane. What I want to know is why. I don't want to avoid you. If I did, I shouldn't be with you today, should I? There seemed to be no reply to that, and Van Dyne's frown only deepened. I thought we were gone to be friends, he went on slowly. We had a quarrel up at camp, but I thought we'd straighten that out. You forgave me, didn't you? Oh, yes. I couldn't very well do anything else. But you'll have to admit I'd never done anything to warrant. I was a fool. Sorry for what I did, too. When you got back, I told you so. I'm a fool still, but I've got sense enough to be patient. Pretty rough, though, the way you treat me. Thinking about you most of the time, all upset, don't sleep the way I ought. Things don't taste right. I'm in love with you, Jane. I thought you had promised not to speak of that again she put in with lowered voice. Oh, hang it! I've got to speak of it, he growled. When a fellow wants to marry a girl, he can't stay in the background and see other fellows paying her attention, hear stories of... Jane looked up, her eyes questioning sharply, and Coleman Van Dyne stopped short. He had not meant to go so far. Stories? About me? He wouldn't reply and only glowered at his horse's ears. "'What story have you heard about me, Coley?' she asked quietly. "'Oh, nothing,' he mumbled. "'It wasn't about you,' he finished lamely. 
it's something that concerns me then you've made that clear you must tell me at once she said decisively van dyne glanced at her and dropped his gaze aware for the second time that this girl's spirit when it rose was too strong for him and yet there was an anxiety in her curiosity too which gave him a sense of mastery oh just gossip he said cautiously everybody gets his share of it you know then he laughed aloud rather too noisily so that she wasn't deceived it's something i have a right to know of course it must be unpleasant or you wouldn't have thought of it again you must tell me coley what difference does it make none but i mean to hear it just the same oh he saw that her face was set in resolute lines so he looked away his lids narrowing while he thought of a plan which might turn his information to his own advantage it isn't about you at all he said slowly sparring for time then why did you think of it she had him cornered now and he knew it so he fought back sullenly looking anywhere but at her you haven't given me a fair show jane up in camp we got to be pretty good pals until until you found out i wanted to marry you even then you said there wasn't any reason why we shouldn't be friends i lost my head that morning and made a fool of myself and you ran away and got lost when the guides brought you back you were different utterly changed something had happened you wouldn't have been so rotten to me just because because of that besides you forgave me didn't i acknowledge it and haven't i done the square thing let you alone watched you from a distance almost as if i didn't even know you i tell you jane what is this to do with wait he said his eyes now searching hers his color deepening as he gathered courage while jane loring listened conscious that her companion's intrusiveness and brutality were dragging her pride in the dust you went off into the woods and stayed five days you told us when you got back to camp that you'd been found by an indian guide and that you hadn't been able to find the trail and all that sort of thing everybody believed you we were all too glad to get you back what i want to know is why you told that story what was your reason for keeping back it was true she stammered but his keen eyes saw that her face was blanching and her emotion infuriated him i'll accept that the indian guide was phil gallatin he said brutally the hands that held the reins jerked involuntarily and her horse reared and swerved away but in a moment she had steadied him and when van dyne drew alongside of her she was still very pale but quite composed how do you know that she asked in a voice the tones of which she still struggled to control he waited a long moment the frown gathering more darkly he had still hoped it seemed that she might deny it oh i know it all right he muttered glowering 
Her laughter rather surprised him. Your keenness does you credit, she continued. I met a stranger in the woods and stayed at his camp. There's nothing extraordinary in that. No, he interrupted quickly. Not in that. The extraordinary thing is that you should have, he hesitated, lied about it, she suggested calmly. Oh, I don't think we need to discuss that. I'm not in the habit of talking over my personal affairs. Her indifference inflamed him further, and his eyes gleamed maliciously. It's a pity Gallatin hasn't a similar code. Her eyes opened wide. What do you mean? She asked haltingly. That Gallatin is telling of the adventure himself, he said with a bold laugh. He is telling of the adventure, she repeated, and then paused, her horrified eyes peering straight ahead of her. Oh, how odious of him! How odious! There is nothing to tell. Coley, absolutely nothing. And then, as a new thought, even more horrible than those that had gone before crossed her mind, what are they saying? Has he, has he spoken my name? Tell me, I can't believe that of him, not that. Van Dyne was not sure that the emotion which he felt was pity for her or pity for himself. But he looked away, his face reddening uncomfortably, and when he spoke his voice was lowered. I heard the story, he said with crafty deliberateness, at the club. I got up and left the room. Was, was Mr. Gallatin there? No, not there, he muttered. He came in as I left. You know, it wouldn't have been possible for me to stay. What are they saying, Coley? She gasped, seeking in one breath to plumb the whole depth of her humiliation. You must tell me. Do you mean that they're saying that, that Mr. Gallatin and I were... She couldn't finish, and he made no effort to help her, for her troubled face and every word that she uttered went further to confirm his suspicions and increase his misery. Do you believe that? she whispered again. Do you? And then, as he refused to turn his head or reply, How dreadful of you! She put spurs to her horse, and before he was well aware of it, was vanishing among the trees. His animal was unequal to the task he set for it, for he lost sight of her, found her again in the distance, and thundered after, breathing heavily and perspiring at every pore, hating himself for his suspicions, and filled with terror at the thought of losing her. Never had he been so mad for the possession of her as now, and floundered helplessly on like an untrained dog in pursuit of a wounded bird. But he couldn't catch up with her, and when later he stopped at the Loring house, she refused to see him. End of chapter 10